First Timothy chapter three. First Timothy chapter three, page one thousand one hundred seventy-eight. One thousand one hundred seventy-eight. Eleven seventy-eight is First Timothy. One of the pastoral epistles. Paul wrote. Paul and others wrote letters to churches. Galatians, which we've been studying in the past, but he also wrote letters to people, to men like Timothy and Titus, other fellow servants of the Lord, and instructs them in their ministry as well. So page 1178, 1 Timothy 3, we're going to read at verse 14 uh, to verse, chapter 4, rather, verse 5. Hear the word of God. I hope to come soon, or to you soon, But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory." Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Thus far reading in the New Testament, let's turn to the Old Testament, page 535. 535. Psalm Psalm 16, rather. 535. Psalm 16. We're going to read the whole psalm, which is a mictum of David, but we're going to study verses 9 and 10 in light of the Incarnation. They anticipate... They require for their meaning to be true the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So Psalm 16, page 535. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take, the names on, or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And here are the words of our text. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In in your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Again, verses 9 and 10. 9 and 10 of Psalm 16 are our text this morning. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come in a few moments, to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so to receive in our very hands the bread and the wine, to taste and to eat very tangible, very real, very physical elements 
which, of course, contain in the promise assigned them by God in His Word a very spiritual blessing. We recognize that the real blessing of the Lord's Supper is not, first of all, in its physical elements, but in its spiritual uh, promise that in this bread and wine, the Lord attaches this meaning that as surely as we receive this bread and wine by faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, so certainly do we receive Jesus Christ's body and blood. We receive the blessedness that is promised in this supper by His grace, though not physically, but spiritually. And so we rejoice in both the body and, you might say, the soul, in both the physical and the spiritual. We don't divide these things. We unite them. We maintain them as one, recognizing the benefit of both body and soul. And that's also one of the reasons why we read from 1 Timothy chapter 3. There you hear the wonderful message of salvation again, which we confess that hymn that Paul records where he speaks of Jesus as manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. The great message of our salvation, of our forgiveness of sins and redemption, our bodies and blood, our bodies and souls rather, redeemed in Jesus Christ. But you'll notice that then Paul also applies that in very tangible ways in the first five verses of chapter 4. He talks about those who forbid marriage and abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving for everything that God created is good and is to be received by God. Paul not only emphasizes the great spiritual blessing that we receive in Jesus Christ, but also the great physical blessing that we are given, for both are given in Jesus Christ. And that's something of what we want to see in our understanding and study of Psalm 16, the verses 9 and 10 this morning, uh, that in, in those words, the, uh, the psalmist David anticipates the coming of Jesus Christ and the blessedness that that bestows not only upon our souls, but also upon our bodies. For David, as we read in verse 9, speaks in this way, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Paul say, or David rather says, I am comforted, I am confident, because I know this, my body will not see corruption. Sheol here is a reference to the grave, although it is a reference also to the separation that exists between the sinner and the Creator, between the one who dies under the judgment of God against sin and the great and righteous Creator who made man to live in fellowship with Him. Indeed, David says, though I enter into the grave, you will not abandon my soul there. I will enter into your presence. I will go into your very courts and there worship you, even as we confess with the Heidelberg Catechism, that those who believe on the moment of their passing are ushered immediately into the very presence of God, even as the criminal on the cross was told by Jesus, today you will be with me in paradise. But notice that David also says, that my, you will, or my flesh also dwells secure, for you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Holy One here is variously translated in other passages. It's 
a Hebrew word that is used differently in various passages. It's sometimes translated as saints, sometimes translated as godly, and sometimes translated as faithful. Your faithful one, your godly one, your saint will not see corruption, says David. Corruption here uh, is uh, uh, um, an interpretation of the word uh, in light of what the New Testament does with this passage. The original word really just means pit, that you will not let your holy one see the pit. Uh, But the pit there is a, a picture of what happens also to our bodies when we enter into the grave, the decomposition that happens, the corruption that we experience in the flesh. So that David here says, even though my body's going to go into the pit, it will not decompose, it will not corrupt because of who you are, because of what you've done. I have comfort, I have confidence, says David, I have certainty in my relationship with you, so that body and soul, I may live and die before you. The David uh, speaks of dark and difficult things, but he speaks of them with great confidence and comfort. Indeed, we ought to do the same or learn to do the same, even though it is a difficult thing to do, to talk about death or to talk about the effects of death upon our existence. These are heavy, hard, these are scary and uncertain words. Death is not something we like to think about. Not something that gives us warm fuzzies. It's something that frightens us. It's something that we do everything we can to avoid. For there is some darkness there. There is some fear there that we instinctively feel within our hearts. And so we also ought to think in the way that David does so that we can, in the face of that reality, find great comfort in the knowledge that we who die in the Lord die, enter into the very presence of God at the moment of our death. And that we can with David say, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Although, come to think of it, how can we say that? I mean, let your, or my soul will not be abandoned to Sheol. That one we understand. We very easily and very quickly think that upon death our soul goes into heaven as it rightly does. But how can we say with David, how could David say, you will not let your Holy One see corruption? After all, Surely David has seen corruption. Surely his body has decomposed. Surely it has been scattered to the very four corners of the earth. How can we possibly say, how could David possibly say, you will not let your Holy One see corruption? Keep in mind, of course, that our bodies are an important part of our experience of life. We were created living souls. That is, we have a body element to our existence and a soul element to our existence, but they are two halves of one whole. They are not two individual parts. They are two halves of one whole. In fact, we understand that, don't we? We experience that so much in life because so much of our lives, even our spiritual lives, are experienced in the flesh. 
Think of the smell of a newly washed infant in your arms. Think of the joy of running on a summer's evening in the yard. Think of the blessedness of your favorite meal and the contentment, the joy that you experience. There is a physical element and a spiritual element. And when we are called to put off these mortal coils, we do lose something. Thus, in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 4, the Apostle Paul talks about how we don't want to put off this body. We don't want to be unclothed, the language he uses. He says we don't want to be naked, which is to say outside of our bodies. We want to be further clothed. We want the permanent home of our resurrected bodies. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. We forget that, I think. We tend to be contented too easily with heaven, which sounds strange to say, of course. But we too quickly cut the gospel in half. For the hope of the gospel is not just heaven. It is instead the full redemption of all that God has created by the power of His grace in Jesus Christ. We do not preach a gospel that's only about escaping the travails of this life and making it to that blissful utopia that's in the clouds. No, we preach a gospel of the new heavens and the new earth. A redemption so full and complete that no part of our existence is untouched by it. Indeed, if we were to preach anything less, the story of redemption would be so diminished that we could never really dwell secure. If our bodies, if our fleshly existence is not relevant to the story of redemption, then every disease we experience is a thief. Every birthday one step closer to the precipice. Every joy fleeting. Every day a day to mourn. Just think back to the time that maybe you had COVID and maybe lost your sense of taste and smell. If you lost your taste or sense of taste and smell during COVID, did you not find that eating was less enjoyable? That that blessedness, that experience that was otherwise a, a rich thing was now diminished and dimmed? Imagine then what happens when other faculties begin to fail, when your eyes dim, when your legs no longer allow you to go where you want to go, where your physical existence betrays you. Read Ecclesiastes 12, which paints the picture of our aging bodies in graphic detail, ending with the words, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. To diminish the reality of our physical existence, to deny the significance of our bodies in all of their experience, is to cut the gospel in half and is to deny the wonder of Christmas. To be sure, we don't want to swing the pendulum too far the other way and so lose touch with the the spiritual blessedness of Jesus Christ's coming. We do want to maintain the riches of forgiveness of sins and of our spiritual blessedness in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Heaven is a great place to be. 
This life isn't bad. Heaven is definitely better. For to be free from the stain of sin that marks our fleshly existence, to be free to worship God without the constraints of greed and lust, weakness and the vagaries of age, is to be longed for by everyone. But the truth is, there's something even better after that. And that something better pours an enormous amount of comfort into this life for those who see it. But to get to that comfort, you've got to stop at the manger on Christmas morning. You need to reflect on the strangeness of David's words. It doesn't make sense what David here writes. It makes sense if you generalize his words. If only he's talking about confidence in the love of God so that even if he dies, he knows he'll go to heaven and dwell there with the Lord then this is fine. We don't have to wrestle with these words or struggle with their meaning. But if we take his words at face value, my whole being, my flesh, corruption, then what David here says is impossible or at least wrong because he does see corruption. His flesh did not dwell secure. Long ago his body returned to the dust from which it was made. Which is why people very quickly jump to what David meant instead of what David said. But what if we take this literally? What if we take David's words in the very way that they they sound to us when we read them? You say, it's impossible. It cannot be literal. David died. His body saw corruption. His son died. Solomon, his grandson, Rehoboam, his every son died. Every son of David, let alone any other human being, has not dwelt secure in the grave. Their bodies have seen corruption. Every son of David has experienced that pain. Well, except for one. Peter on Pentecost Sunday cites this text as proof that Jesus rose from the dead. Paul also uses this text powerfully in Acts 13 verse 35 as a reference to Jesus' real and bodily resurrection. For Peter and for Paul, the gospel they proclaimed was not merely spiritual, it was also very physical, fleshly, tangible. It was the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. Because they understood that every hair follicle, every nail, every bone of Jesus' body, every cell in His skin, every part of His fleshly existence was of vital significance for the encouragement of all people. They understood that Jesus had to be in the flesh in order for us to be saved. Because they knew that without the flesh, nailed to the cross, not just a spiritual sacrifice, but a physical offering upon the altar of God's grace. Unless all of our existence is paid for, unless all of our debt is paid, unless the full human died so that the full human could be redeemed. 
unless Jesus was a real man, we would never be saved. In the flesh we are sinners. And in the flesh our Savior redeemed us. And therefore we have joy in the flesh. Oh yes, it is precisely because Jesus died in the flesh, rose in the flesh, sits at the right hand of God in the flesh. It is precisely because of Christmas. Because the incarnate Lord took on flesh. That we can dwell secure in our flesh. Think of Job's words in Job 19, the verses 26 and 27. 25, of course. Job 19, verse 25 is the passage that we so quickly remember and reflect on, isn't it? Job 19, 25 says that I will see in the flesh Jesus. You know those well-known words. We heard them Thursday night at our Christmas program. There, Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last He will stand upon the earth. But then he writes, And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold not another. How my heart faints within me, says Job. See, the incarnation is not a cute story intended to tug at our heartstrings of a cute baby born to a young couple. It is the very security of our fleshly existence. For without the incarnation, without the coming in the flesh of our Savior, There is no hope. There is no future, no redemption. His flesh is not a convenient cloak that He wears for a time. It is a central element of His sacrifice on the cross. It is central even to our very celebration this morning. For we receive bread for flesh, wine for blood. For Jesus died body and soul so that He might redeem us body and soul. Which is why we can say with David exactly what he says in our text. You see, David's words aren't only prophetic. They are prophetic. He's looking forward to Christmas morning. He can say these words because he knows there's coming one of whom these words will be true. There is one who will die, but whose body will not see corruption. For he will rise again after three days. But it's precisely because David can see with the eyes of faith by the prophetic gift of God the reality of Christmas morning is for that reason that David can say these words about himself that we can say these words about ourselves too. David could die knowing that a real, tangible, in-the-flesh baby would be born. And because that baby, born in the flesh, who cried, who was fed and bathed, who was taught to walk and talk, because he was a real man, 
could pay the full penalty of our sin and redeem us body and soul. Therefore, because of that, David could die in comfort. Because he knows his flesh, even though it would decay, though it would lay in the grave for a long time, that one day it would come forth. David's flesh could rest secure because he knew the grave was no longer a place of unrelenting darkness. He knew that for his soul, of course, it was an entryway into eternity, but for his body, it was but a room to sleep in, a brief bed upon which it would wait until the Savior's coming again. His faith, in his faith, he could dwell secure precisely because he knew a fleshly Savior would redeem a fleshly David by reaching all the way to the manger on Christmas morning. David was able to say, I have confidence in my existence and even in my death. And that that promise exists for all of us too. Christ's in the flesh redemption, which includes the full redemption of our flesh, holds for us great promise. It it holds great promise in obvious ways. When we lay our loved ones in the grave, we may do so knowing their story's not finished. Oh, not yet. Their bodies may have suffered much due to the vagaries of age or disease or tragedy. But in the end, they will stand again upon the earth in the flesh because a fleshly Savior died for them. We can suffer the loss of our body's functions because we know we're not losing a thing. We're only laying them down for a time. More than that, we can still show the weak and frail who are suffering the effects of the curse in their flesh great dignity and respect. We can see past the weakness of our elderly grandparents, our diseased loved ones in the hospital bed, and we can see in them the great redeeming work of Jesus Christ, the price paid for that grandmother, the blood poured out for that special needs child, knowing that Jesus has redeemed them body and soul. And we know that their story has an amazing end. But deeper, we have a reason for valuing the physical, for rejoicing in the tangible, and for celebrating all our humanity. Keeping in mind Paul's words in 1 Timothy 3. We do not despise the physical. We do not despise marriage. We do not despise food. We do not despise the pleasures of the flesh. We rejoice to know that in this too, this part of our creatureliness, Jesus has worked redemption. That even in this we have been freed from the limits of sin, from the slavery of sin, and been made to now live our lives even in the flesh 
to the glory of God. Indeed, we must acknowledge this truth in our grateful service to our Lord. It's not for nothing that Paul appeals to us in Romans 12 to present your bodies as living sacrifices of praise. Or again in 1 Corinthians 6, in dealing with sexual immorality, he says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Oh, our world carelessly and casually treats the body as existing for mere pleasure, for chasing adrenaline, for showing it off. Our world degrades the value of the physical. But the gospel redeems it and gives to our world what it desperately needs to hear, that there is value to be cherished because of the redeemed work of Jesus Christ. There is even deeper still a comfort to these words. Some of us need to hear this truth so very far down inside of our spirits. Maybe we don't fit the standard of physical beauty that our culture exalts. Maybe we bear scars and wounds upon our body that diminish its pristine beauty and the obvious immorality of our age prevents us from seeing anything else. All we see is the brokenness when we look in the mirror. All we see is that which is not attractive. Maybe we struggle with the lusts of the flesh. A longing and desire within our bodies that simply will not let us go. We want to be free of it. But it cruelly pursues us. And sometimes that cruelty crushes. Maybe we know something of the perverseness of sin's abuse in the flesh. Maybe somebody hurt us by treating us as merely sexual pleasure. Maybe we even want to tell ourselves that it's not that bad. That who we really are is deep inside, untouched by any wicked hand. But the wounds that scar our souls don't listen. They throb and ache. And like so many around us, we can only limp through the day. And it is to you, David's words speak hope. A future hope. A day when everything will be made right. When all of your scars will be healed. And a present hope that the Savior who took on flesh, born on Christmas morning, did so to minister to your spirit, of course, and your heart, without question, but your body too. You are body and soul. And worship a Savior who is body and soul. Even as we prepare to receive the bread and the wine. In remembrance of His body and blood. Sacrificed on our behalf. We have been given life. And life to the full. And we need to live out of that reality. That Christmas morning and that birth of that baby. That flesh that was held in the arms of Mary. That is our hope as we live in the flesh, and as we walk in this fallen world with our own failings and with the failings of others, we have a Savior whose redemption is enough. Let's thank Him for that in prayer. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You that we can also, with David, 
rejoice, that our hearts are glad and our whole being rejoices, our flesh also dwells secure, knowing that you will not abandon our souls to shield or let your holy ones see corruption. Not for anything that we've done, but because Jesus was born. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. Jesus ascended in the flesh at your right hand. Lord, may we forever see the fullness of your redeeming work, not cutting it in half, not diminishing its significance, not making it only about heaven, but making it about today too. We pray that you would help us to live in this joy and comfort as only you are able, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.